Hello and welcome to Finding the Glitter in the Gold, a Lord of the Rings chat podcast. Um, I'm Hannah. And I'm Zoe. And we are, as always, discussing the works of John Ronald Raoul Tolkien, who was writing stories set in Middle-earth from 1937, when he was about 45, up until his death in 1973. And he still had not made an internally consistent narrative in all of that time. So any little mistakes that we make with the uh, minutiae of this are because we are making shit up. But today, that's not really going to be a major issue because we are going to be discussing the works of Middle Earth as interpreted by Peter Jackson in the movies. More specifically, we're gonna be talking about the soundtracks of these movies. From what I have learned over the course of this podcast and from checking out his poetry and stuff, he was a pretty lyrical dude. He wrote a lot of music and songs. And I mean, uh, his world was formed by a song. Yeah, so music was really important to him. And, um, I feel like the movies did a pretty bitchin' job of preserving that, I don't know, love of music that he had going for him. So this comes from a, a Tumblr post by LOTR fans are dorks, where dorks is spelled D-O-R-C-S, as in orcs. Uh, I thought that was very clever oh, of them. Oh, that's, that's, that's. Oh, <laughs> I don't know how you feel about that, honestly. <laughs> part of me is like, that's an awesome pun. And part of me is like, I am not an orc. And part of me is like, why? <laughs> that's a lot of feelings about a very good Tumblr name. And I'm fully committed to it. You can commit to it. I will be following in your stead, like Sam <laughs> followed Frodo to the cracks of Mount Doom. Anywho. Perfect. Perfect. So this is basically just giving some background. And this was given to me by my dear friend, Hiccup, who is also on Tumblr. She sent this in as a, as a recommendation for us to, to cover. Uh, so this kind of goes into the history of the Lord of the Rings soundtrack and how much work went into it. So I guess some background information. I'll back up before I read this post, but um, the entire Lord of the Rings soundtrack and the Hobbit movies was composed by Howard Leslie Shore, who's a Canadian composer and a conductor who's well known for all of his film scores. He's composed for over 80 films. I didn't know that he did The Silence of the Lambs. Yeah. And I, I did was not know that. I love that movie. He has also a consistent collaborator with director David Cronenberg, who um, is a guy known for his body horror and like infection and transformation and disease. He did The Fly, like he just scored all of his films except for one since 1979. So Howard Leslie Shore got a range. He received four Academy Award nominations and won three for his work on Lord of the Rings. He won two for Best Original Score for Lord of the Rings Fellowship of the Ring and Lord of the Rings Return of the King. And then he won the Oscar for the Best Original Song for Into the West from Lord of the Rings The Return of the King, uh, which he shared with the lead vocalist who was from Eurythmics. Uh, the band Eurythmics, which I didn't know, Annie Lennox. And he also shared it with writer-producer Fran Walsh, who wrote the lyrics. The, the Tumblr post by uh, Lord of the Rings fans are dorks goes into the fact that most composers spend about 10 to 12-ish weeks working on a film's music. John Williams, who did the Star Wars movies, spent about 14 weeks on each of those, 40 weeks total for the whole original trilogy. But composing the Lord of the Rings trilogy soundtrack took four years. 
The vocals are usually in one of Tolkien's languages, especially Elvish. The English translations of the lyrics are all poems or quotes from the book, or occasionally even quotes from the other parts of the films that are relevant to the scene. Where there would be no finished scenes for him to score, Howard Shore would develop musical themes inspired by the scripts or passages from the book. That's how all the Middle Earth locations have their own unique sound. He was able to compose drafts of what Gondor would sound like, and what Lorien would sound like long before any scenes in those places were filmed. Shore has said his favorite parts to score were always the little heartfelt moments between Frodo and Sam. And there's a gif of Frodo kissing Sam's forehead in this post, which is very cute. Shore wrote over a hundred unique leitmotifs or musical themes to represent specific people, places, and things in Middle Earth. There's over 160 if you count The Hobbit. And I'm gonna pause here and just define leitmotif which is a short, consistently reoccurring musical phrase that's associated with a person, place, or idea. Um, it comes from the German Liedmotiv, which literally means leading motif or guiding motif. And it should be pretty recognizable. Like a good Liedmotiv immediately makes you think of a specific character or moment or place. And I, I will say here, I'm not a musically inclined person. The only instrument I know how to play is marimba, and I haven't done that since middle school. And I don't pay a lot of attention to the music in movies very often, but the Lord of the Rings soundtrack always really stood out for me. And it was very noticeable and recognizable how I was meant to feel in the particular scene or what a scene was hearkening back to. And I think that clarity is like really useful over a course of these huge sweeping epic movies. One of my favorite leitmotifs that I noticed, and I think you'll enjoy this, so the entire um, Into the West song. So that, the instrumental part of that is playing right before um, the, the walls of Gondor are broken through when Gandalf mm -hmm. and Merry are talking. Gandalf and Pippin are talking? Sorry, Gandalf and Pippin. Oh, <laughs> when Gandalf and Pippin are talking, mm -hmm. and then in the background, you just hear the ding, 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 ding. That's lovely. And that's before it even shows up, right? Like yeah, that's, it, it's entirety. like a premonition wow. of what's to come. Yeah, I love that. That's where Gandalf's talking about what's in the West and like the clouds part and what death is like. And that's like, it's a exact quote from Tolkien uh, mm. in The Return of the King. That's precisely what Gandalf says when the, the silver clouds roll back and all you can see is a green land under a swift sunrise. I love that you have that memorized. Fun fact, I tried to memorize the entire trilogy when I was about 15 years old Holy because shit. I thought that would be really cool to be able to recite the entire Lord of the Rings. Oh Obviously, God. that did not happen, but I do retain uh, some of my favorite passages. I mean, that's useful too. <laughs> and the very first uh, sentence of The Two Towers. Which is? Uh, Aragorn sped up the hill. <laughs> That's literally the first sentence of The Two Towers. Oh, God, I was expecting something huge and poetic, and it's four no. goddamn words. And that's why I really love it, is because it's just so, like, I mean, because, like, the Tolkien didn't want the trilogy to be split up, right? Yeah. So they kind of just split it between. He had the, the parts when it became the two different storylines that they were following. And in the book, yeah. it doesn't go back and forth. It just gives one chunk and another chunk, and then the other chunk, and it, so it's kind of arbitrary where it starts. And I just remember finding that so funny. <laughs> Aragorn sped up the hill. <laughs> um, Anywho. God, to get back to leitmotifs, 
So the, the Tumblr post continues. Uh, the ones we all talk about are the Fellowship theme, the Main Shire theme, and the themes for places like Gondor, Mordor, Rohan, and Rivendell. But a lot more of the subtle ones get overlooked and underappreciated. And this particular writer um, goes into a few of them. And I'll talk about a couple more that are available on uh, the Wikipedia page for music of the Lord of the Rings. They just have a big old list of these leap motifs. Uh, if you ever want to check that out, which I spent a good hour doing. So Aragorn's theme, it's a lot less obvious than the others because like Aragorn himself, it adapts to take on the color of whatever place Aragorn is in. It's played on dramatic, broody stringed instruments in Bree, on horns in battle scenes, softly on the flute with Arwen and Rivendell. Eowyn has not just one, but three different leitmotifs to represent her. Gollum and Smeagol both have their own leitmotifs. Whose theme music is playing in the scene can often tell you whether the Gollum or Smeagol side is winning at the moment, which is pretty cool. The melody for Gollum's song in the end credits of the Two Towers is the Smeagol and Gollum themes smushed together, which this person points out, it's symbolic. And then there's the really obscure ones, like there's a melody that plays at Boromir's death that shows up again in Return of the King in scenes that foreshadow a major death or loss. So you have this uh, established, you know, bad feeling about this music because Boromir died to it. And then it comes up again to be like, uh-oh, uh-oh, guess what's coming, guys? Death! <laughs> As they yell, Theoden is like clanking his sword. Death! Yeah. <laughs> So the reason for this, Shore wanted the theme music to grow alongside the characters so that as the characters changed, their theme music would change with them. You can hear that most clearly in the Shire theme. Like the Hobbits, it goes through a lot. Like compare the childish little penny whistle theme you hear in Concerning Hobbits or the beginning of Fellowship of the Ring with, and then in uh, crossed out parentheses this person has throws a dart at random beautiful tragic hobbit character development scene because there's way too many to choose from uh, and they've picked the scene where pippin finds mary on the battlefield where you hear a kind of shattered and broken but more mature version of that same theme in the background and this person has provided examples of these in youtube form and i'm not going to click that um, I did watch them and like was really teary with the Mary Pippin scene. I was like, I, I mean, forgot how beautiful this moment is. It's so lovely. They are just like such well-established friends and they love each other so much. And it's beautiful. You're not going to leave me. No, I will stay with you, Mary. <laughs> um, and then the last part of this post, unlike the heroes themes, which constantly change and grow, the villains themes, the one ring theme, the Isengard theme, etc., remain basically the same from the very beginning of Fellowship of the Ring to the end of Return of the King. Shore said that this was an intentional choice to emphasize that evil is static while good is capable of change. Shore has said that between all the music that made, in, made it into the movies and the music that didn't, he composed enough for a month of continuous listening. And this person says, where can I sign up? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Which I would agree with. I did find a website called musicoflotr.com. And this guy named Doug Adams composed an entire book of just, and then he has like another version of it out. Um, but it's just the music of Lord of the Rings and talking about it. And then it has CDs with it. And then like the forums of people talking about this stuff, people get intensely analytical. About specifically um, Howard Shore's Yeah, it's, music? It's, just the, it's just the Howard yeah. Shore music from Lord of the Rings that he's just compiled 
all of it and then like talked about it and it has a lot of the background of it and it's this like big honking book that comes in like seven volumes with cds dang and it has a lot of like the rare songs Hmm. didn't make it into the movies and things like that okay real quick there's again as i said a hundred leitmotifs in lord of the rings um the Lord of the Rings movies and 160 total if you include The Hobbit. So I'm just going to go through a few of the really cool ones and how they were described on the Wikipedia page. But in The Fellowship of the Ring, there's um, five themes for Mordor plus three kind of like bonus uh, mutations of those. And one of them was called the Baradur Ostianto or Descending Thirds motif. And this is the background music to a lot of the more threatening Mordor material, especially Sauron's theme, but it also appears on its own. For instance, when Bilbo leaves the ring behind in Bag End. It's the basis to the Dol Guldur theme and to Azog and Bolg's themes from The Hobbit. Themes for Hobbits, just describing the general tone of Hobbit themes, they are very Celtic sounding, scored for Celtic instruments, namely the fiddle and tin whistle. Their maturation through the story has them not only transform melodically and harmonically, but also make use of the orchestral relatives of the folk instruments with which they originally played. The music is stepwise and calm with old world modal harmonies harmonies to evoke familiarity. And besides all this material, Shore also introduces one other independent theme for the Shire, a hobbit's understanding, which is used when the hobbits come to understand the hardships and struggles of their journey. So this was talked about in the post. It's used when Gandalf advises and encourages Frodo in Moria, and in a more grand setting throughout the breaking of the fellowship sequence, and again when Sam encourages Frodo in Gilead. It is used in The Hobbit when Gandalf instills the notion of compassion in Bilbo. So that was kind of a introducing mature themes to hobbits. <laughs> is like the theme of that leitmotif. As we see the hobbits grow up, they have their own song. Yeah, and it's like a hobbit learning about pain and death and all this stuff. Uh, There's some themes for for Gollum, and there's the pity of Smeagol, which is a slow, gloomy piece. It is first heard in the prologue when Smeagol discovers the ring. It's closely related to the hobbit music, but also to the history of the one ring and the weakness arpeggios. It is applied briefly to Bilbo as he adopts Gollum's manner of speaking towards the ring, and to Gandalf as he embarks on the hunt for Gollum. In terms of Elvision music, the music of the elves is generally sinuous in line with the art department's vision of Elvish architecture, which is a podcast we'll address at some later point. We want to talk about the architecture of Middle-earth in these movies, too. Um, but the music of the elves is clear-toned and elegant, being scored for women voices, violins, and chimes. It is, however, also ancient, exotic, and at times closed off to the outside world, like the elves, and is, in those instances, scored for Eastern instruments and contains melodic intervals prevalent in Eastern music. So they were really gearing this towards Western standards, and then they go uh, Eastern with it to try to make it more, I don't know, foreign. I mean, I guess they're trying to call upon the Japanese um when they were closed off to the western world um anyone who tried to go to japan would be killed until the east indian trading company in holland made their way and finally broke through those walls and made contact but like that's also a really stereotypical way of talking about things and relationships and like i don't know that kind of strikes me as very westward focused and a little bit 
stereotyped. Yeah, but I mean, I feel like especially with music, you try to appeal to some very specific aesthetics with it and the way that people in Western countries and Europe and stuff like that have learned about music has been extremely Western focused. So if you want to make something sound a little bit strange, you can go for Eastern, which is a, again, like a really weird shortcut to take. I mean, that reminds me of how Tolkien wanted Dwarish to sound like Hebrew because it didn't sound like a language Westerners would know very well. It would be alien enough. Hilariously, I was watching a movie back when I used to get a lot of Netflix DVDs. It was um, it was called Waltz with Bashir. And I went through half the movie and I thought they were speaking French the entire time. And then I was like, wait, I haven't understood a single word they've said. And I looked it up and it was all Hebrew. And I was like, I Shit. remember you telling me about that. <laughs> but I could I could see that a little bit from some of the pronunciations of the R's. However, Hebrew has that really specific like CH sound. Yeah. The chutzpah. Chutzpah. Trying yeah. to think of some of the Hebrew songs that I sang. I know. I, I, I felt very silly afterwards, but I was like, it's French. <laughs> What's well, not? It was Hebrew. <laughs> oh, li li madunai. Yeah. That's a fun That's a fun one. Anyway. Yeah. For dwarves, the dwarvish music is raw and based on parallel fifths rather than full chords. I don't know what that is. I'm not a music theory person. I wish I was. Uh, it's scored for all male voices, often for very deep and rough voices at that, and for blaring brass. This contrasts it with the elvish music and also informs the perils of Moria. For Gondor, the music of Gondor and the world of men is stately and brassy, but not necessarily triumphant. The music lamenting the decay of the mortal world. Only from the latter half of the Two Towers and into Return of the Kings are the themes of the world of men presented in more heroic settings. Initially, it's kind of just like, oh, these shitty dudes. Yeah, there's a lot more that I could be going into. There's a theme for Middle-earth called Another Path or Gandalf's Farewells, which is sung by a solo voice immediately after Gandalf falls after fighting the Balrog. It's also used when he eventually departs to Valinor. It is repeated in other occasions, although not necessarily with any direct connection to Gandalf's death, but in an opposing meaning of meeting with Gandalf again. When Frodo and Sam lie on the slopes of the collapsed Mount Doom, Gandalf's farewells is used, perhaps to show that the hobbits are ready to meet again with Gandalf in death. Oh, that's cool. I didn't know that. That's so neat. That's so neat. In Two Towers, we are introduced to Evenstar, which is the main love theme of Aragorn and Arwen. And then we also have a theme for Grima Wormtongue that's introduced, along with a bunch of other Isengard themes, which is alienated from the Rohan themes and rather aligned with the Isengard theme. It is a collection of low notes on brass and deep woodwinds. And then a lot of the themes that are introduced in each of these three movies appear again in The Hobbit. And uh, some examples of that are Bilbo's Birthday, The Map of the Lonely Mountain, Smoke Rings, Flaming Red Hair, Diegetic, Gandalf's Fireworks, Bree, Elvish Medicine, Mithril Vest, Durin's Folk, Galadriel's Powers, The Forces of the Enemy, Legolas's Heroic Feats, Minas Morgul, The Eagles, and Breath of Life. So those are all names of uh, leap motifs that appear again in The Hobbit. Um, also, in speaking about the some of the voices that were used and the different yeah. themes, I did a little bit of research about the the choir because they had a boy choir in New Zealand sing a lot of the really high pitched Elvish songs, yeah. which I adore. Boy sopranos, I think it's a really 
beautifully complex way of integrating just the different sounds to something a slightly like mystic magical quality to the music i think it's brilliant there was some really awesome footage when i was watching the special effects dvd of the like recording and filming of the boy choirs singing but they also had a couple sopranos edward ross of the london oratory school and james wilson they did have a couple specific boys sing a lot of a lot of the elvish leitmotifs but i did so there was an interview of billy boyd um talking about the last goodbye and home is behind it was an npr interview Uh, and so home is behind was taken from the fellowship of the ring it was a poem that tolkien actually wrote Mm. Um, and then billy boyd took the words and put them to song himself yeah himself he made he made up the notes for it wow yeah it was actually a really funny story he wrote he says in the interview yeah the words are tolkien from a couple of his poems but i wrote the melody for it and i actually wrote it very quickly the story of that song starts in a karaoke bar where i was singing delilah by tom jones (laughs) the next day they said would you like to sing a song in the movie i said yeah they were filming, they said, we're filming it in two days. Can you write something? And I went, yeah, <laughs> okay. And I had this great evening when I thought, God, I get to invent a Hobbit song, you know? So I thought back to my own upbringing in Scotland and parties that we used to have and how the grandfather would sing a song and before you knew it, you knew the song and you'd be singing it at parties, you know? So I wanted to get that in this Pippin song. So that's how it's got that kind of Celtic feel and a sort of feeling of longing for home. That's beautiful. Which I also find hilarious because he does not actually ever relate that back to singing Delilah. That's just a random factoid in the story of like, I was singing Delilah and then the next day they asked me to sing a song. Maybe it's just like the the fact that he sung this song and did it well. They were like, oh, good enough. Like, let's get him to do this. But it doesn't say if anyone was there at the karaoke bar. He just says that he was at the karaoke bar. He was entirely alone at a karaoke bar. Probably not entirely alone, but yeah. So that was so that was his um, contribution to the Lord of the Rings, and then in the Hobbit, he actually wrote the end song called "The Last Goodbye," which is sung in the end credits of the final movie. That's so awesome! I yeah. didn't know he was like a musician. Or is he just like a karaoke bar level of singing? I think so. And then he has a good voice. It's really good. Um, I don't think he, I don't know if he was ever professionally trained. I, I don't think he was. He just ended up singing i feel like he makes excuses for that in the movie in such a good way or he's like i know some songs that are better for bars not for evil times or whatever so Mm -hmm. i think that's a a good excuse for the actor as well being like this might not sound perfect (laughs) and it was absolutely beautiful and haunting oh god i i want to cry every time i see that that they did a beautiful job with that That, uh, music really contributes to it and then how they like fade out the sound and all you hear is his voice and then the sound of the the hoofbeats yeah uh, and then like the squelching of the tomatoes and then mm. the drawing of bowstrings and then it all kind of fades out and then there's just his voice oh that scene gets me every time yeah i've been um i've been listening to another podcast um called the magnus archives that's a radio drama basically and they have a whole Q&A session that they do with the cast and they were talking about the building of soundscapes. And it, I mean, it's it's different in radio and stuff like that, but it's some of the same principles, I feel like when you're building up a soundtrack 
to a movie and you're including all of these pieces of natural sound that happens when people are in a scene and interacting with different objects. And you also have that very dramatic, like hoofbeat stuff. Like you, you really nailed it. Those pieces all come together so well, where it's this gorgeous music, this haunting voice, these hoofbeats, this squelchy tomato, like all of that sort of implied gore and violence coming to a head and it's poetic, but it isn't at the same time. I think that scene is probably the strongest one in terms of how they used sound for that. There's diegetic sound and non-diegetic sound and semi-diegetic sound. Diegetic sound is a sound that's taking place in the scene that the characters can also hear. So like the eating and Billy Boyd singing. And then non-diegetic sound would be the music that's kind of playing in the background. It's not a part of the scene. The actors and the characters in the scene can't hear it. It's added later. Yeah. And then semi-diegetic sound is like if you're in a scene and someone in the scene is listening to the radio and then the radio kind of swells and becomes the soundtrack. And I feel like that particular moment sort of straddles all of these where it's bringing elements from each one in and creating this very intentional soundscape that's just gorgeous. Anyway. Thank you for explaining those terms. That's awesome. It was such a cool idea. That's so cool. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I do want to say uh, that now that we've talked about, you know, all of the soundtracky stuff for Lord of the Rings and a bit about The Hobbit, um, but I do want to say that J.R.R. Tolkien was very committed to music, musicality, poetry, all of that sort of stuff. And there are actually recordings out there of him singing some of the songs that are in Lord of the Rings. One example is a recording of J.R.R. Tolkien. I found this on YouTube where he sings the Kenyan poem Namari. There are recordings of him reciting it, but this is one where he actually sings it. They include the translation in the YouTube video, just like talking about kind of this nature-y image and stuff. It's just kind of cool to hear Tolkien singing it. And I wonder if he ever wrote it down, you know, like on a staff with the notes and everything like that. I don't know. He also came out with a record in 1967. The label was through Cademon Records and it is called Poems and Songs of Middle-Earth. And if you Google that, you can find the whole album is up on a website called discogs.com. Oh my God. And this is incredible. This is exciting. The A side of it is all him singing it. That includes the songs, The Adventures of Tom Bombadil, The Mulets, The Horde, Perry the Winkle, The Man in the Moon Came Down Too Soon, The Sea Bell, and uh, Elbereth Gathoniel, which is from The Lord of the Rings, Volume 1, The Fellowship of the Ring, Book 2, Chapter 1, Many Meetings. So that's him narrating it in Elvish. And then the B side of that is all sung by a man named William Elvin, which is a great name for this particular bit, uh, with the piano by Donald Swan. And that includes The Roan Goes Ever On from The Fellowship of the Ring, Upon the Hearth, The Fire is Red, also from The Fellowship, 
in the willow meads of Tessarinen from the two towers, in the western lands from the fellowship, Nimari, which is from the fellowship, I sit beside the fire slash refrain at Elbereth Gathondiel, which is from the fellowship, and Errantry, which is from the adventures of Tom Bombadil. It's funny because you say all these names and my mind jumps to, like, I don't necessarily know all of them, but you say them and I'm like, oh yeah, I remember that one. Oh yeah, that one went like this. Oh yeah, there was also this one. Oh, and I forgot about when they were escaping from the Borrow Downs and they were singing this other song and um, how they're going to like be underneath this tree. Oh, right. All these songs. I forgot about them. I hope that was what it would be for other people too who know these songs. I have no idea what the fuck they are. Oh my God. I'm so excited. Another quick aside about this whole album. W.H. Uh, Auden did the liner notes for it, which is super cool. We love Auden. And finally, uh, the last song that I want to put in here that is not from the movies. I'm so afraid of Peter Jackson suing us. This is J.R.R. Tolkien singing That's What Bilbo Baggins Hates from The Hobbit. Chip the glasses and crack the plates, blunt the knives and bend the forks. That's what Bilbo Baggins hates. Smash the bottles and burn the corks. Cut the cloth and tread on the fat. Pour the milk on the pantry floor. Leave the bones on the bedroom mat. Splash the wine on every door. That's what Bilbo Baggins hates so carefully, carefully with the plate. That's what Bilbo Baggins hates so carefully, carefully with the plate. If you search J.R. Tolkien sings, chip the glasses and crack the plates. That's, That's what Bilbo Baggins hates. Uh, it is 36 seconds of pure marvelousness. Um, <laughs> he has, like, you can tell that he's been a lifetime smoker. And he has this, like, trill that kind of sounds like a false vibrato at the end. Um of mm-hmm. some of the notes, but it reminds me a lot of some just simple Irish ditties. That was what I thought too. It sounded really Irish. Yeah. Oh God, there's a bunch of McClancy Brothers songs that that reminded me of. None of them are coming to mind right now. But yeah, just very much like a, like a little Irish ditty that you might be drinking songish. Yeah, like a drinking song, or like if you're working on the docks or something to help that, to make you go in time. Mm. Oh, that was the one that was from the um, the Hobbit. There was the the drinking song uh-huh. that they sing in the movie when they're on oh. the table. That's where it's from, and it has that same feel, right? Yeah. So the bottle I go to heal my heart and drown my woe. Rain may fall and wind may blow and many miles be still to go, but under a tall tree I will lie and let the clouds go sailing by. I did that. Was that a Tolkien song? That yeah, that was in that was in the Fellowship. It was like a walking song as they were they were walking. Before they met Tom Bombadil, and then a storm starts, and they see a, a rider, a ringwraith on the edge in their, of the horizon. They're like, shut up. We got to get out of here. They don't like um, start singing it faster as they run. No, they <laughs> stop singing and just run. Fair. Um, but, and I feel like that's sung in the movies. No. And I think that's where... No, that's not in the movies? Unless the dwarves sing it in The Hobbit or something. I've only seen the, those movies once, and so I don't remember most of the songs, except for, of course, the Far Over Misty Mountain song, which I loved very much, but because I didn't have a preconceived version in my head. I know I've heard that. with. So maybe that was another Tolkien clip. Hmm. But it has a very similar kind of like jolly Irish... Rolling. Rolling to it. Yeah. Decent rhythm to it, yeah. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I wonder if he was inspired by Irish songs for that. It makes sense. Irish songs 
fucking rock. And he was very familiar with Irish folklore and Celtic myths and legends. So it makes sense. He would know a bunch about their songs and presumably their drinking songs as well. I'm sure. So this is kind of a, a short but intense one, I feel like, where we have a lot of feelings about the music of Lord of the Rings. Well, it, it gives me such a, a greater appreciation for the depth yeah. that they put into the movie. Um, like when I was watching the behind the scenes, I was always struck more by the fact that they made all these miniatures so they could take a camera and like pan through the mines of Moria. And they mm. made all of the swords and the shields and the, the orc weapons. And they actually had a smithy who manufactured thousands and thousands and thousands of weapons just for the movie, for these orcs to wear. And they had all the prosthetics. And I remember being more stunned by that and wanting to like run off and join this adventure as an orc uh, that I kind of like bypass. Like they talk about the music, obviously, but my brain was like, that's cool. Whatever. Tell me more about the smithy. Like nice. But now I'm just like, okay, I have a much greater appreciation for the amount of detail that went in to tying this all together and that would affect your subconscious. And now I want to go back and like listen to the entire album and be like, there it is. Oh, there's the leitmotif. Oh, okay, I see it. I hear it. How does this add to my enjoyment of these movies? Yeah, I feel like I have a deeper appreciation of what music can do for any really piece of drama or media, um, partially because I you know, edit this podcast, but also just because I've spent so much time experiencing those movies and I, at this point, can like hum or sort of like, you know, tunelessly sing along with some of these where you're just doing like, ah, like the, the Shire song where it's like, da, 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 da. yeah. And I don't hit every single note. I don't know every single piece of this. I'm not a musician and I still get something out of this. And I can't even imagine what it's like for people who know the music, understand what every instrument in there is doing, can comprehend what the intention was behind all of this and can recognize those themes cropping up again and again, because I'm very bad at recognizing when a piece is hearkening back to another and I can still catch a few of those in the movie. Like they did such a good job with this film. I'm just giggling and smiling like a maniac over here. I know. We're both no, just... no one on the podcast can see it, but so everyone knows I am, I have a cheese eating grin and I'm just bouncing <laughs> up and down because I'm really happy. <laughs> I have loved this episode so much and I appreciate all of you listening to it as well. We have been finding the glitter and the gold. Uh, if you want to email us, feel free to reach out at glitterinthegold at gmail.com. We're available through basically any podcasting service that you have. The major ones, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Breaker, Google Podcasts, Radio Public, Pocket Casts, and Overcast. And whatever one you're getting us through, it would be great if you could like us on that app, uh, rate us, write us a review, subscribe, all that jazz. Um, yeah, and thank you for joining us to this little love song to the songs of Middle Earth. See y'all on the Shire side. Bye.